Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Sana Sana Podcast. I'm Adriana. And I'm Adriana. So. Here we are again. We are. So- sorry I sound a little, I'm realizing I'm probably going to sound a little stuffy on here. Too much. Just a little. You're good. You're good. So this is episode seven officially. Mm-hmm. We are almost at episode ten. <laughs> we got three more to go. But. I know. I'm gonna be present. So but. we're on episode seven. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm like. Let's live in the moment. Let's take a breath. Ah, <sighs> yeah. Hopefully, our listeners t- took a breath with us. What else is going on with you? Um, I was just gonna ask you the same thing. Oh, how have you been? I've been good. So I have some updates um, in regards to my therapist. Um, I know last time that we talked, it was the first time that I was going to go see her. And I did. Um, It was definitely an interesting visit to the doctor because, you know, I've been wanting to go see a therapist. I've been trying really hard to, like, get an appointment. You've all heard about it. If you haven't, well, now you have. I've just been trying really hard, but it's I've just been waiting for months and months and months. And so when I get there, I was really overwhelmed and just um, a lot of emotions that I wasn't expecting came over me. And so I was like mad. I was frustrated. I was um, just not in a in a good place, really which was really interesting to me. And then as I kind of was talking to her, I was already thinking like I didn't like her and just all these negative feelings. And like, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I was in therapy again, right? Even though I do this podcast, even though I'm an advocate for mental health, even though I know therapy is normal, it felt like a little bit of a failure inside of me mm-hmm. that I was in therapy. Does that make sense to you? It does. And it felt like, wow, I'm here all over again. I have to talk to this person all over again because you have to, right? You have to let them know you, what you're thinking, what issues you want to bring up. And it just, I was feeling really um, defeated for some reason. I mean, for the reasons that I'm actually sharing with you right now. And it was just so interesting that obviously logically I know these things. I know that therapy is good. I know that it's necessary. I know that I've wanted it, but at the same time, my emotions were showing something else. That was, it was really, really interesting for that to be my first interaction with a therapist. So I went again last week Mm -hmm. um, and it was um, definitely, I'm still getting to know her. Um, she's still getting to know me, but but I'm still on the fence. I feel like she's more of a tough love person. Mm. And that was really hard for me to <laughs> like, deal with. <laughs> because she was she's very upfront and I my other therapist, Elizabeth, if you're listening, I love you and miss you. She was so awesome because she was more of a nurturer. She was more affirming. She was just so special. And just like this other person, Dr. Rebecca, she is just very different. She's colder and just I'm not used to it at all. So it's it's definitely weird still. And I don't know. 
So her, I remember you were like worried about. I that. have not asked her. She did refer to over there. Uh, like she was like, "Oh, so you were born, so you were raised over there," and I was like, "Oh, maybe like you." In terms of like, I was raised in Ecuador, and that's what she referred to it. So I was like, "Oh, maybe she's." I don't know. I haven't asked her if she's identifies as a Latina or anything about her yet, because I'm still kind of feeling it out. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know much about her background. I should ask. Can I ask her that? Yeah. Okay. So maybe I'm going to ask her that. You can ask her all the kind of things that you had asked intake. Okay. And especially as like, as you're feeling each other out, right? You can even say like, I understand that we're feeling each other out. And so I wanted to ask you a few things about your, like your praxis, about how you, like how you do your work as a therapist, because... This isn't my first time, and this is what has worked for me before and what hasn't. Okay. And maybe you're still figuring out what has and hasn't worked, right? But you could definitely use that as a launching pad to at least have a conversation. If that's something that's important to you, you might learn that it's something that is important to you, but it might not necessarily be something that you need Mm -hmm. versus something that's nice to have, right? So... Yeah, absolutely. So I just feel like I'm still still processing it. Mm -hmm. Like, I thought that this was going to be black and white. I thought that I was a therapist pro and that I was going to go in there and, you know, deal with all my issues immediately. But man, was I wrong? Like, I'm still like really processing it. And I'm still Yeah, I mean, that's I feel like that's the only way I can really describe it. It's still uncomfortable. I'm still processing it. And I'm still trying to figure out if this is going to work. And if not, I'll just um, ask to be switched over to someone else but i'm definitely going to start um like you're mentioning uh, just talking to her yeah which can be really intimidating because i feel like i already tried tried to but i stopped myself and then i probably just started crying but you know we'll we'll see what happens yeah no i really am proud of you first of all for sharing that i think there are so many people who could probably identify with exactly what you're saying um, I hope, and if you do, please let us know because <laughs> I feel alone. <laughs> for me, as someone who's been in therapy for a while, um, I I know for me, I definitely don't have the answers. I still don't. Um, it took me a long time to find the therapist that I currently work w- with and that to me is like, wow, where have you been? Um, right? It took me a while to get there in my life. Um I haven't done a lot of individual therapy. I think um, I've been in individual therapy a little bit, but it was almost always like I was going in because I was part of a couple that was like struggling. Mm -hmm. Um, So this has been like the most I've ever like spent on myself with therapy. And it's always uncomfortable. (laughs) I think it's always uncomfortable and it's always eye-opening where I'm like, wow, this is really my edge of like, I have to remind myself why I'm here, mm-hmm. right? Um, that I'm worth it. That I'm like worth the work that it's gonna take to get to get um, to the other side, right? Because mm-hmm. there isn't like this idea of like being getting better, quote unquote. I don't. I don't think that's why I'm in therapy, right? I'm in therapy because I um, I really believe in this idea of healing. Um, but also just like I'm really determined to always be my best self 
And for me, therapy really is that space for me to do that work, right, with a coach or with someone who's like really committed to get me there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not easy. I personally am someone who's more tough love, so I respond well to tough love. But I think it's important that if you are, if you've had really good progress with someone who's affirming, like that you take that seriously. Also, though, like, were you growing? Right. So just because it felt good doesn't necessarily mean, and just because, like, we got along amazingly and she understood me 100% doesn't mean that I was doing the work that I needed or maybe at that time I didn't need to. Or And that doesn't mean that this therapist showing me tough love isn't going to work. So I'm willing to explore it. Mm-hmm. But it felt really different yeah I was like real mm-hmm. okay like literally I felt like almost like not insulted but like damn did you just say that to me right now <laughs> like okay but she was wow. totally right and she made me see things in a different perspective that I often don't and that I remember that maybe my other therapist never would have put it in those words right right so um you know I am still confused she I'm, sounds latina <laughs> <laughs> maybe she oh, is those tough love latinas man i'm gonna be like so my podcast co-host thinks you're a tough love latina just tell me yes or no <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that'll be the perfect like conversation to find out but yeah so i'm just wanting to share that i'm just feeling all the feels and really trying to see if this is going to work out and mm-hmm. I I don't know why I thought that this was going to be like as soon as I got my appointment, it was going to just be golden. Right. Um, and it's not. It's just a reality. But it's been a while since I've been in therapy. So I'm glad to be um, focusing on myself and like you're saying, trying to be my best self and just um, having some support. So yeah. I'm glad about a lot of things and I'm super thankful also. But we'll see. Stay tuned. Yeah, definitely. Let you know. I I love that you also shared about that, like, what do they call it? Cognitive dissonance. I think that's the word when when you know something to be true, but you feel it differently. Is Mm -hmm. that is that right? So um, I think I, I have those moments all the time. And that's that's the work, right? That's the work, like closing that gap. Because we're some of the traumas that we carry are so deep and they're the motivations for why we do the things we do. And sometimes those behaviors are what we're trying to change, right? So that we're not doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. Um, so I'm glad that you mentioned that because I think that happens to a lot of people. I know that has happened to me where I'm like, I know I believe this to be true, but then why do I feel this way? I really, like, at that moment, and I didn't even talk to her about it, um, other than how I explained it mm-hmm. right now, but I, I, now thinking about it um, right now, I just feel like it's all that stigma, it's all those messages that we received, right? Mm-hmm. They're still internalized. Like, I have internalized them mm-hmm. so much, and it all came out that day. Um, like I, I could just feel it in my body. I could feel that I was feeling insecure about it and all these other th- just weird thoughts in my head. 
And it blew my mind. It blew my mind because here I am preaching about like how mental health is so important for us to talk about. And I have a, you know, we have a podcast about it and it's something that I'm a huge advocate for my family. I'm starting conversations with different people. And at the same time, I can't come to come to terms with it. So I felt like a, like a failure. I felt like a faker. Um, Mm -hmm. right. But it's not, it's not something that I was able to control, right? And those are things that I'm gonna continue to work on, but it was definitely like, my mind was blown, continues to be blown, (laughs) so um, yeah. That's growth, yeah, Mm -hmm. that's amazing. I mean, there's so many things we internalize, which is why we have to keep talking about it, Absolutely. It's not just to, to open doors for everyone who's listening or for community members, often when we, say the things we say and especially when they start to sound repetitive they're affirmations they're what we know is true that we're working towards being true for like permanently Mm -hmm. right um like to me as i explore my spirituality like i know a lot of the things that i'm working on are already true in another timeline so i'm just saying it over and over until that that day comes um, I like that. Yeah. So, you know, it's important that if you believe something, even if it's something that is scary to you when you say it out loud, like that you have to like talk about it until it is true for you. Um, you know, that's why affirmations are so, so important and so real. <laughs> so Like so deep, right? Because it's like all those messages that we receive – there has to be another like counter to that so we have to like reprogram ourselves sometimes Mm -hmm. with that like love and affection and you know just like what we're talking about specifically like how healthy it is for you to be taking time to take care of your emotional health and your mental well-being like there is nothing wrong with that thank you for listening and i'm glad that you shared that it's great well, I'll be looking forward to hearing more about that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Poor lady. You're listening to Sana Sana Podcast, Episode 7, with Adriana and Adriana. On today's Sana Sana Glossary, our key words are diaspora and appropriation. Join the conversation and share your definition of these words on social media. The word diaspora really is just referencing the the dispersion. So what's what's like a regular word for that? Like the the basically the spread of people from their ancestral homelands. That that is what diaspora means. My Sana Sana glossary word for today is appropriation. And this is something that we hear about a lot nowadays in the news. Um, you hear you hear a lot about the Kardashians appropriating every culture, but specifically black culture. Culture vultures. Culture vultures. Hashtag culture vultures. That's actually funny. The way that I see <laughs> the appropriation is when a dominant culture um, adopts or appropriates a element of the minority culture. So best way I can share this is with um, an example, right? So um, one that I've seen a lot is kind of hairstyles um, or styles um, or aesthetics 
of black communities. So hoops and braids, right? These are um, traditional to some cultures um, and you see and often it's looked up, down upon, right? Often it's not even accepted by the dominant culture when um, black or other communities of color just wear or use their native or just traditional garments or hair or um, hoops. But when a white person or the dominant culture uses it, it's really edgy and cutting edge and they make money off of it. They profit off of it when they sell it. So that's what I think when we're talking about cultural appropriation. That's a, okay, that's a, that's a good definition. I also think, though, that communities of color can appropriate from each other. Tell me more. So I think for me, appropriation is any time that's not your culture and you take it and you profit off of it Mm -hmm. without really doing the due diligence of honoring where that tradition or where that if we're using the example of clothing even um i think that that's also appropriation um, it doesn't have to be limited to people who are dominant if you're profit, profiting off of it without like really because there's a line between appreciation and appropriation mm-hmm. right so like if you see a Latina who's in um, cornrows and doesn't have any African descent to me that's that's bordering the line and that's not boring that's appropriation mm-hmm. in my mind Especially if she's making money off of it somehow. Or or she's more accepted or it's like like cooler for her to do it where it might not be for. I feel like you're completely right. I feel like when we're talking about appropriation, we have to talk about privilege and oppression, right? Because it really mm-hmm. does depend um, who is wearing or who is doing what, who is profiting mm-hmm. off X um, in terms like we see this a lot like in the fashion industry we see this a lot in the music industry um, and when there is a profit Mm -hmm. being made on like just the traditional culture like that is appropriation Mm -hmm. if I'm being specific when I was using my example I was thinking specifically of J-Lo so like JLo has been called out a lot by because she she has often used also black culture. To- I mean, when she was with Diddy, I feel like that's when it I mean, I don't know that that's when it happened, but that's when it was pretty um, right front and center. Yeah. And I think. Latinos, sometimes we feel like we get a pass because we are a community of color, but. I think it's it's one of those like real tricky tight. Well, especially because she acts. was making a lot of money off of it, right? Yeah. She was profiting off of it. But so my question slash pushback for that is so I don't know about J Lo's past, right? Whatever, like her uh, ancestry and her, exactly. Her makeup, right? But let's t- let's say that you know she grew up in the Bronx. She had a lot of family members, and or her community was mixed, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of black cultural influence, right? So she she it's kind of part of who she is. So right. 
what do we do in a situation like that, right? Yeah, no, and I'm glad that we're talking about this because it's so messy and mm-hmm. it's not simple. I think even this touches on uh, some unpacking I want to do later on around, um, there's a lot of um, like discussion around who gets to use the word people of color. Can't wait. Yeah, bookmark that. But, <laughs> but I think... I think it's really about coming back to what we always talk about, right? It's like, how do you acknowledge your privilege and how do you use that to open doors for your community? So like with someone like JLo, I think it's hard because it's it's that same, you know, I think that was the same time when you're talking about the Diddy days. Mm-hmm. She used <laughs> the N-word in one of her um, songs. Like she used the N-word uh. and people had to explain to her like why it's not okay for her to use that. And I think, what do we do about it? I mean, I think we have to just keep having these really open, frank discussions. It's a personal choice, right? And we we can we can critique or call out or call in any one of us that's in our community to talk about these things. But I think ultimately it has to be up to the person to decide if this is something that is appropriating or not. I think... My default is I always listen to black women. <laughs> and if they're, yes. if they're saying something is off, then I'm, I usually default to what they're saying. I agree. Um, so that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> that's all I really have in terms of, like, uh, unpacking that. Because, you know, we don't know what J-Lo is, but I think even being ethnically ambiguous is a privilege. Yeah, it is. Um. And that's not to say she's not, you know, she doesn't have um, African heritage, but I, I, she doesn't present as such. So I think yeah. that's like it's really important to understand that. That's why it gets so messy within Latinx like culture because it it doesn't always matter who your parents are or how far back, like what your your ancestry is. At the end of the day, it's it, a lot of it has to do with how you present. And how you pass, and we, whether you want to pass or not. Yeah, like, and we pass and present so varied and so different in different contexts and different geographic locations. So it is super messy. Yeah, and just very, um, just complicated. So it is. It is really complicated, um, especially because with Latinos, like we don't um, even even if you are someone who's white, a white Latino or white passing. Um, it could be either or sometimes, right? It's not both. It it doesn't mean that you haven't experienced oppression or that you that even you haven't experienced experienced like racism because maybe your parents experienced it. Like that is still something that you as a child, if you're like first generation, are feeling and experiencing. It doesn't automatically negate like how racism works, right? Structural racism. You could still be impacted even if if you pass as white. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not this easy answer to say like, okay, um, this doesn't apply to you, so you, you automatically have privilege. Like there's that's why it's so important that we like look at all of the nuances and and talk about it though. You know who did a really great video on this recently was um Kat Lasso on Me Too. She did um a, she's doing a whole video series called The Cat Call. Oh my gosh. And she did one on um, race and Latinidad. It's really good. It's cute. We should um, link that on the show notes. Okay. Will do. Cool. 
All right, that's all we got for you. Um, as always, Sana Sana community, if you have definitions for appropriation or diaspora, please share them with us. <laughs> we look forward to reading them and to learning from you. Be right back. You're listening to Sana Sana Podcast, a feminist podcast that promotes healing and normalizes mental health with Adriana and Adriana. It's time for a featured segment, Corazón a Corazón. Let's get to the heart of things with Melissa Dupre, today's special guest. Our conversation has been edited for clarity and brevity. Follow along and share your favorite quotes on social media using the hashtag Sana Sana Podcast. Uh, hello, everyone who's listening. My name is Melissa Ray Dupre of the Humble Park Dupre's, second generation Boricua, born and raised in Chicago, um, hearts in Puerto Rico, obvio. I um, am a Chicago native. I went to school in Texas and I got my degrees in performance arts from the University of Houston, as well as a, a second bachelor's degree in Spanish for Spanish literature and translation. Um, and then I came back home to Chicago because I knew that's where I was going to get work and I've been working ever since I came back home and I also was able to get back involved in my community and my heritage because this is like where another large concentration of Puerto Ricans are they're definitely not in Houston Texas so I feel very much at home here trying to find my um, finding my footing my identity and my spiritual path that intersects with my artistic path So a question we ask everyone is, what does mental health mean to you? Mental health, while it has always been something that was very elusive, even after um, my mom passed away, it took me almost a year to even find a therapist. Um, Mental health first means accessibility. First and foremost, I, I feel like all mental health should be accessible. And then on the premise of mental health, mental health is a process in which we do some really reflective work on ourselves as humans to heal violence, trauma, and harm, so that way we can end cycles of violence, trauma, and harm. Regardless of mental illness, which can also be genetic, and Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of difficulties and barriers around that, but I think that we definitely should have mental health in order to combat a lot of the systemic problems that we have that exclude us from being full, uh, healthy, well accountable human beings Mm -hmm. like there are some really deep reflective practices that we're missing Mm -hmm. and i think that mental health is always just a process to reflect on ourselves so we can help others absolutely another question that we ask everyone is what does healing mean to you healing for me is is so specific because um i am an extrovert <laughs> I'm an extrovert. Yeah, no, go on. No, seriously. I'm an extrovert, so healing for me looks different in terms of healing for everybody else. It's very personal. Um and I I truly feel that healing is part of an energy sharing process for me. I feel depleted when I'm isolated, but I feel full when I'm engaged socially or when I'm engaged individually with uh, another person. So I get a lot of energy back by being engaged with someone. Mm-hmm. So for me, that process of healing isn't always just isolated or singular. Mm-hmm. For me, healing is being in communion with people, 
It is filling gaps that I might have not been able to fill myself. Mm -hmm. Um, But then finding ways of like, oh, what is that feeling that makes me feel whole and complete? And how do I I, um, duplicate that for my own needs? So like sometimes I do feel like, girl, you need to sit down so you can heal, right? But for me, that's actually a date with someone. That's actually like going out with my girlfriends and getting foot massages and then talking Mm -hmm. about where, you know, speaking life into someone. Mm -hmm. Um, Because when I can speak life into someone, and they feel good and complete, I could also take that feeling and do that myself as like part of an energy transition, energy reciprocity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one version. Um, but for healing for performance, oh man. So like after reflective process has happened, so a lot of times I will sit down and start to write anecdotes or you know like I will record my abuela telling stories I will um, I will start to want to think about or talk about comedically or in a solo performance a lot of um, issues that we might come up as women as Latinas uh, so I might start writing about it and then I will come up and tell I was like oh that was actually really traumatic that my mom used to come and chase me to kick my ass you know that was really traumatic but I can write that as a comedic way I sit and process it by myself mm-hmm. I'll cry as I'm writing and then I'll go up on stage and present it as comedy so people can attach themselves to it and then I no longer own that pain or trauma mm-hmm. I've released it out into people so that way they can process it and heal it but once I've done that on stage I no longer hold it it's no longer just my own that particular trauma or that particular event that sits with me so the performance of it is healing in that it no longer stays just with me and that it's no longer my own to bear I don't have to hold the weight of all of it the shared experiences allows me for relief Mm. oh that's beautiful we talk a lot about the way that we see healing is we, we heal in community. Yeah. And that's kind of what it's reminding me of, mm-hmm. right? Because you're sharing with others and they can relate to what you're sharing. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, then they can kind of think about it and in their own way heal. Last night, no, not last night, it was Thursday night. It was my first time going back into stand-up after taking a year off because I purposely said, I, I lost my mom. That was my best friend. I need, I need to be able to set an example where women of color afford themselves grief. You know, grief is a privilege, and not many women are afforded the privilege of actually being able to process their grief. So I purposely took a year off. And so Thursday was my first time back. And before Thursday, I was really thinking about how I can use grief and release it in comedy. And so I start talking about it. I was like, I actually like funerals because it's the only time where I can, where my abuela goes and takes all the stuff that she has guarda. And like she starts bringing out all these old gems. I was like, Yo tengo toda la cosa guarda, toda la foto tuya, la tengo guarda. And I'm like, that's amazing. But I, I really want to spin grief and social justice into comedy. Mm-hmm. So that way, like, we're not always dealing with the pain of it all and the burden of it all. That we're sharing that experience and we're allowing some disruptive joy to come in and take the place of all that anger and frustration. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, that's just one example. I am not the only person to grieve. I'm not the only person that has experienced loss, but I think the collective shared experience of it really attaches us together. And my while my comedy set wasn't on point, like it was rusty as hell, I forgot punchlines, 
still really charming and people were you know the humanity of it like you're not there just to sensationalize pain you're there to actually present a human self on stage so that way you can see into people you could actually connect so i got a lot of hugs at night and i'm okay with that yeah. no and i yeah. actually really love what you're so we were just talking about grief Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a big theme today mm -hmm. that was yeah. not intentional. Mm -hmm. um, Retrograde. Right? Yes. Yeah. So, like, as we're reflecting on grief as a privilege, um, I just also really love that you honored it for yourself and took a year off mm -hmm. from your stand up work to mm -hmm. be able to, like, go through. Because I think grief is, like, one of the big connectors of, mm -hmm. like, all humans go through grief of some sort at some point in mm -hmm. our lives. So it's something that, like, we can... That it brings us together in some way. Mm -hmm. And it's such a beautiful thing, but we often don't have, like you said, the privilege, or mm -hmm. we don't even know how to grieve. And it's such a double standard for artists, particularly, because so much of what we see artists go through, whether they're hyper-local or super celebrity, um, when they don't process themselves, it still looks really unhealthy. And you can tell that they're unhealthy, and then we just become consumers of their own trauma. Mm. Um, and so, like, that becomes sensationalized, and I can't stand it. Like, when something like a divorce or a death, and that person is still on stage or still mm. in the limelight, and it's just such an interpersonal it's such an interpersonal event and then I, I feel like our culture has become consumers of that public trauma whereas I really did not want to like bleed out on stage I was just I, that wasn't that wasn't for anybody else to actually like watch and consume and then like well, this is a hot mess you know I was really intentional about like being able to process and then coming back ready mm -hmm. and coming back ready to talk about it without it breaking me without it being like opening up a wound um, so like that's a way I protect myself as an artist when I talk about mental health and well-being on stage like I have to have sat with it for some time mm -hmm. and process it learned from it so that way I can translate it yeah. and even transform it artistically a little bit so it's mm -hmm. a swallowable pill in the form of comedy or like yeah. performance yeah. I could package it and not break on stage yeah I want to make sure we take a step back and talk about mm -hmm. your work as an artist. Ah, yes. We, we want to hear all mm -hmm. about that. It's very complex and, and layered in the sense that I'm a slash queen who is like wearing many hats, uh, Jill of all trades and master of none, um, where I felt like when I came back to Chicago, part of part of my, um, my passion and my burden was representation. Mm -hmm. Uh, is and always will be representation. So I really felt that there was a lot of work. I'm a classically trained actor. I have eight years of Shakespeare. Tell me if I'm going to actually play an ingenue Juliet. Mm. No, no, I'm not stupid. Um, but I also don't want to commit my energy to that kind of work where I don't feel it is an, a, you know, an, um, an accurate representation of who I am. Mm -hmm. um, not that I need to be represented, but people like me and demographics like me that are marginalized. So when I came back to Chicago, I started with Teatro Luna, which is, mm. at the time, they used this term pan Latina, which mm. is really just encompassing all Latinidad, um, where it's autobiographic and ethnographic work. So they would take a lot of interviews and then they would transform that into performance and even trade off monologues from different identities so like if a colombian woman was telling a story about narcotraficantes mm. we might try to match that with a colombian in our group and if we didn't have one we would try to match that with someone similar or completely juxtapose 
who your identities are and overlay that monologue just to see what was more interesting and effective. Oh. So it was, it was it was really cool in that sense where we wrote our own stories um, or we took autobiographical information and then transformed it. And I started working with Christiana Colon at that time. She was one of our mm-hmm. tremendous playwrights. I was writing um, at the time I came in, Miranda Gonzalez and Alex Meda were the artistic and executive directors. And the, the company was founded under Koya Paz and Tanya Soracha. So those are two dominant figures that are in a lot of conversations in their own right. Um, Koya particularly around devising. What does it mean to create a piece that is autobiographic and ethnographic through an ensemble? And that kind of form was a lot of vignettes, just like little small pieces. So that started to push me into like, oh, we write in here? I just don't get a script and do whatever is on a script? So it really challenged me in a way where I was coming out of undergrad and all I knew was like these old cis white men plays and a single author script. Um, so it started to challenge me as a writer, and then in that theater group, we would put on like um, one nights. We call them one night stands, where it was really just like noche bohemia. We would do pop up venues in different bars, and we would invite all these women of color, femmes of color, um, to do their work. It's an interdisciplinary art form. And one night, we just didn't have anybody. It was winter. It was the dead of winter. We had a bar booked, and we didn't have any lineup. And so we were just like, well, let's just all do something what do we know how to do and they looked at me Melissa you do you do something and I was like I don't know how to do anything like all I do is act and tell dick jokes and they were like great do 15 minutes of dick jokes I was like no no um yeah and then I I actually sat down and I wrote a 15 minute set of how much I love to masturbate and how taboo it is in our culture to talk about that openly as women because of one generational gaps mm-hmm. and cultural gaps. But I was just like, I don't know about you, but like I masturbate like it's my job. Um, <laughs> and I found healing. Like that was my first step in healing when I moved back home because I had a really traumatic event in, te- in Texas and it forced me to come back and I really needed to like learn myself again. I was in an abusive six year relationship and I was living in my grandmother's house. So I was just like, I'm not fucking in here. Like <laughs> I'm not. So I was just like, I took to masturbating like a baby to a bottle and, <laughs> I really wanted to talk about that. And so I talked about that. And that night, for some reason, everybody came out to that bar. It was packed. And the floor was just dead. People were rolling on the floor. <laughs> I had never even once considered myself a comic. Um, but that's that night, it was born. My first solo show, Sexomedy, was born out of the first 15 minutes of me talking about masturbating openly in the public with men and women there, and they were just blushing and dying and blah! I can't (laughs) believe you said that! And I was talking about all this stuff. So I did it three more times, and then by then I had 45 minutes, and then I workshopped that through Teatro Luna, and then um, it became an hour. And then I debuted that, then Sexomedy oversold, and I just kept working on it and working on it, and did it at the greenhouse, developed it there. So then I started over a course of a year, I was known as a solo artist, but like the funniest solo artist ever. So I took a comedy class just to make it better. And in the comedy class I took on a Friday night, that instructor, the teacher, his name's Ken Gar, he's like my comedy guru. He told Mikey O, who's a, a, a local yeah. Latino comedy booker, this girl's funny, you should have her on Sunday show. 
So between my first, my very first class on Friday, oh wow, I did my first five minute set of actual stand up comedy in front of three hundred people at Joe's. Three hundred people at Joe's, and so. From there, at that point, after that point, I started getting booked on Mikey O stuff, and then I was known as a comic around Chicago. So I was cross-pollinating the comedy scene with Latinos that Mikey O has built, and then bringing them to my solo show, Sexomedy. And that was an explosion. It became a DVD. It was, it was critically acclaimed, and I took it to New York to tour. And so... By that point, I was just like, this is cool. This is not at all what I actually studied. This is not what, like, I'm not getting pulled into theater. I'm not, I'm doing all this stuff on my own. At that point, I was just a solo artist with, and doing stand-up comedy. And I was touring, so I was making, you know, I was making a name for myself, but I was still, like, being put on the back burner as an actress. Hmm. Um, until I got an agent in Chicago, and then I went into an audition for the Goodman Theater. And I got cast for Luna Gale and it was my first Goodman credit it was my first like legit um equity high regional theater job and then it all started coming together and when I booked the Goodman gig I I decided to quit my full-time paralegal job and become an artist full-time and since then like my whole You're listening to Sana Sana Podcast, Episode 7, with Adriana. And Adriana. In this episode's Corazón a Corazón segment, we're talking with Melissa Dupree, Chicago native, storyteller, and performer. Let's get back to the conversation. It, it, was, it was a long, accidental road where I had to make a leap and also find things about myself that I did not know. Like, I, I didn't even consider myself funny. Um, for a long time <laughs> until I learned how to just like transform what I was going through in my experiences in that per- in that particular art form and so mixing all of that you know I noticed that I was not getting booked on booked in theater I was not being called in for things um, I I had to create my own platform I had to create my voice all my material all my monologues I wrote them I had to do that and I also pulled in from stuff that that the other women in the theater company wrote, but I noticed that representation was so, it it was just, it's played for us. Like it's through some weird lens that's played for us. There is almost zero diasporic blackness in theater and TV and film, zero. So while I was touring my solo shows and comedy, I got into the ABC diversity showcase on my own um, material. And so I thought that ABC would back me into pilot season and I'm doing all those things, but there's nothing written for me. Mm. So there's doors closing. And so I went to LA and I tried my hand out there and, and with my own stuff, like trying to do the, they're trying to make this in living color on like four different networks. NBC's trying to make a new version of in living color. Mm. And so I went into an audition with my own material ready to go. I wrote sketches and sketches and sketches. Um, and those producers come in and says, we're looking for the next Sofia Vergara. And right away I said, toss my shit, I'm walking out the door. Because I wrote a whole sketch on how Sofia Vergara is bad for Latinas and I have like immig- Latino immigration officers with a big list of people who are bad for, <laughs> bad for our culture. And she, <laughs> she's the first one to get deported in that sketch. 
And so I was like, well, they're going to hate this. I did it. They died. But they didn't understand what it meant to say, I'm looking for the next Sofia Vergara, where she's really problematic for the kind of representation that we're seeking um, until things like Jane the Virgin comes out or um, things like, you know, Madrinas, where we're going to, you know, or Tanya Sriracha writing Bruja, Brujas with Afro-Latinas. Still problematic in its own right. <laughs> um, but there's just such a lack. And so my whole artistic career up until that point was really about creating the kind of representation that is true, not authentic, but real and intersectional. Mm -hmm. And so I started, I kept writing, I kept writing, and I wrote a show called Sushi Frito where it talks about like taking over white spaces that were Columbus in the first place uh, <laughs> and being brown and like being healthy and like what does it mean to like reclaim our own health and bodies? Because like I love kale, but I'll put, still put adobo on it. You know, <laughs> I, I, I cook with quinoa instead of, you know, it's quinoa and habichuelas for me. Like all the intersectionalities of being brown and progressive where it's like, that's such a white thing. And I'm like, actually, whites have no culture and we need to reclaim the things that white have, white people have appropriated mm -hmm. for our own. Does that make us appropriators? Yes, because that actually, came, like yoga came from India, right. you know, and we are using that as a, as a practice, but what is progressive and what is intersectional and what is appropriation and can people of color appropriate? Absolutely. Yeah, because the is Peruvian. Or reclaim. Yeah, or reclaim. Reclaim. yeah. Reclaiming, is, reclaiming is also a process, but how do we as people of color also... Um, um, identify our power and privilege when mm -hmm. we do that yes, and especially yes, yes. as I, I created a whole vocabulary where it's like neo-latina and, and um, domestic Rican and like there are so much of what we are today that is intersectional and parts of like reclaiming traditions that we want to we want to hold on to and pushing back on patriarchy and pushing back on all the things that are destructive and anti-progressive so I will never really find that out there until I write it or until people like us write it. And this is for the arts, you know, this is specifically speaking to my mission as an artist is to create the kind of intersectional diasporic representation that I feel exists. Mm -hmm. um, can we talk about the show you're on? Hey! Don't so, forget that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was on a, sh a show, Brown Girls, are we talking about? Uh, I was on a show, Brown Girls, that was uh, directed by Samantha Bailey, written by um, Fatima and her experiences with um, Jamila Woods as her best friend, and also talking about queerness and, um, and intersectionality, and again, like holding on to traditions, valuing traditions, valuing identity, and I fell in love with the script and the project itself, and like when Samantha Bailey calls you up to say, hey, can you do this? You're like, I'm free. Uh, <laughs> I'm free, whatever you need, um, and working with her is such a joy, and working with, you know, they were, it, the entire team, the production team, were f queer femmes of color, mm. um, or queer femmes. And I was just like, this is what heaven looks like. <laughs> um, and it was a great experience. We did not, when, when you're focused on identity, when you're focused on just the reality of um, a person in the midst of oppression and um, systemic violence and cultural identity issues, when you just start to play around with any kind of form of those things, you start to really find humanity in the things that we're not seeing on TV and film and um, 
even the web series. So like the web series are a beautiful platform to do actually that, to be content creators, to create the world you want to see and you want that's not being shown already. And the networks are thirsty for it. So it came out when we, pa- we filmed it, we packaged it, and then we released it on a specific date. The hype for that show was such that it became the second leading trending thing on Twitter on that debut. And it just broke barriers just in its existence. And then um, HBO, again, networks are looking at this stuff. Networks are looking on the web. They have people specifically scouting for what's the hottest thing that millennials are into, what's the hottest thing that is on YouTube, and who are the YouTube subscribers, and who are those YouTube stars. Oh, my God, YouTube stars are just like the bane of my existence because it really devalues what I do as an artist. Um, not that they're not valuable and creative, but like I hate going into a meeting with a network exec and ask me how many subscribers I have on YouTube. I was like, I don't. I don't have my world for free on YouTube. Mm-hmm. That's neither here nor there. But <laughs> it's a tangent, yeah. though. I bet we a, might want a bookmark for a future company. Yeah, it's yeah, a tangent, yeah. but um, but then Brown Girls was um picked up by HBO, but then it was also nominated for an Emmy for all of its accolades in the in the web world. Um, it did not win the Emmy for like best web series, but it still garnered a lot of respect and attention. And we don't know what's going to happen in the HBO development because we did not sign off on, um, you know, like first release or first refusal where we have, you know, clout or mm-hmm. attachment to our characters. I wish. Um, but like anything else, like Issa Rae and, and Awkward Girl and became... Uh, insecure mm-hmm. so only some of it gets to go through it you know under HBO development it's really hard to stake your claim as the producer and the content and so those women um, those people who produce their own work like Aziz Ansari and Master of None and sold this to Netflix like they have to stake their claim mm-hmm. in order to say I made this I want to produce it I want to make sure I have a hand in being able to diversify and keep diverse our material and not have it said through a white lens because I, most of, if not all, of these network producers are cis white men in their mid-30s. It's devastating. Um, so it, we just don't know what's going to happen, but that's also, like, why I'm excited. Yeah. I get to, um, you know, we, we all did it for just, you know, the the most modest amount of money. But what we have been afforded, luckily, is the ability to say, like, we were part of that project. Yeah. And, and use that as a platform to promote our own individual careers and I'm very grateful for it and I know as an artist it's healing for you but as consumers right mm-hmm. as, as a people who love and need art mm-hmm. like it's so healing to be able to see <laughs> and that want to see art. ourselves or experiences mm-hmm. that no one else talks about or wants to write about right it's it's it means everything like mm-hmm. it's and, and we're also supposed to challenge it. Like, it's not supposed to be meant to be, like, right. it, you know, it's a snippet. But what was really challenging is, like, I, I'm an Afro-Latina. Um, I I also saw that a, a, the predominant narrative was about being on the south side of Chicago. And they were filming in Pilsen. And there was no Latinos or Latinx representation there. Um, and also, like, can black people be gentrifiers? Absolutely. Like, there's a lot there, but, like, it's it's just to, like, get a snippet of the story. But we're also supposed to be, you know, challenging ourselves mm-hmm. to do more and do better and to dig deeper. But that's just, you know, like, an eight-minute episode is not going to get into all of that. But it does beautifully capture 
stories of intimate friendship and radical love in a way that is not binary or it is not um, just exclusively mixed couples for the sake of being mixed couples. Mm-hmm. Um, it is it is truly defining what we should be talking about as far as like queer radical love between each other. What's your wish for um, for your work and for um, baby artists that are coming into their own? Mm, I love me some baby artists. I love me some baby artists because they 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 may or may not have the kind of disillusioned feeling of who's not seeing me, who is seeing me. I I personally still grapple with like how to be relevant in a time where I really should just be focusing on my stories. Um, but the way that the the run and capitalism works and the commercialization of art, I can't help but still feel pressure of like I'm creating work for what, for what purpose. And for me, um, my work now is to exist and to be packaged in a, packaged in a way that is. Um, meaningful and impactful like i want to i want to say like this is a story the work that i'm putting out maybe my own maybe like brought from other diasporas or even just spiritual um spiritual paths that the work combined when put together on a platform someone can say oh that's what that must look like let's bring that to the forefront who is in charge of that who gets to be that gatekeeper i have problems with all of it you know, I, I grapple I grapple with um, I grapple with someone else being able to tell that story. What I really want is to be able to be in conversation with how that story gets told and who's the audience and how accessible that gets to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm really trying to make the make the art to put people like me in their own positions of power. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. and deconstruct that power. Yeah. You know, deconstruct that power. Like I want, I don't want to be invited to the table. I want to flip the fucking table. Decolonize and that like, shit. <laughs> I, a super, yeah, a super decolonized process. But like right now, they owned a lot. Of, they own a lot of those platforms. So would I want to package it to someone like Soma Hayek? Nah. Would I want to package it to someone like you? So probably not. Still, because you're so embedded in that vein, that process. So like, how does it exist? There's so many questions. So like my 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 priority is to just focus on the work and that's what i would tell baby artists is just like focus on making that work that art pure and yours and unique and um coming from a real place because there's so much that can get wrapped in it was like you know we should be able to have um a critical dialogue about everything Mm -hmm. and then use that you know we should be able to use that and i think it's gonna all of it will sell all of it will be meaningful and impactful if it's coming from a place that, that actually critiques a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I love Aziz Azari, Master of None. Do I really feel like, you know, we need to see more white ingenues as the love interest? No, I don't. But I love the work that it's doing because it's so, like, ah, oh, I love it. It's so intersectional. It's so intersectional, and it and it does like break a lot of myths and stereotypes um, within our own cultures, within our own diasporas. Like the the Thanksgiving episode is everything, you know, because we want to break the generational gap of understanding of who we are now. Um, so I think that's the kind of work baby artists are doing. They're mm. they're doing some hella deep 
critical analysis of their own lives and trying to transform that artistically and somehow. Mm -hmm. And also, please keep continue to cross pollinate the disciplines. Mm -hmm. I want to see more like live art at a poetry event with storytelling with musicians. Mm -hmm. Like, I want more of that. I want more Mm -hmm. of that. We need to see more because there's so many, you know, like there's so many ciphers and vacuums that happens um, that I think people, artists in general, like can get sucked into this thing where like they have to just focus on one particular art form and I don't think it's helpful for telling uh, an intersectional story you should have multiple forms of art involved in it so just don't just don't focus on one carrera like get involved in a lot of things mm-hmm. it's been such a pleasure having you thank you thank you I could hear your voice like for hours just like <laughs> I know yes um, we yeah it, I just I wanted to add on that is that um, I I don't think that people should also be afraid of bringing in a healing component into their art. Mm. What I'm doing right now, the show that I'm popping out next is called Brujaha, and it's tales of an accidental witch. We're like this whole fad right now. This whole like I think we're in a really beautiful moment of bringing in natural yes. healing and going back to our ancestral roots mm-hmm. and bringing in a lot of like que te cura and um, naturalismo and I'm I'm initiated in the Yoruba religion so like that in and of itself is my experience right now so I don't think people should also shy away from like the things that they hold private you could keep that but I think that's really brave I think it's really brave we should be definitely be talking about healing and wellness and trauma in our work because it's informed so much of our work mm-hmm. so it's, like, it's part of who we are yeah right yeah mm-hmm Definitely. So we, last question is, uh, or did you have one you were Well, my question was, where can people find yeah, you? Where can people support you? What can they do? Mm-hmm. I'm under the biggest rock in Humble Park. Uh, they can find me there. <laughs> um, and when I'm not under my rock, I am on Facebook. And I feel like that's just such a medieval form now. <laughs> like, I'm not on Insta- I am on Instagram, but if you check it, nothing's been uploaded since Douglas in 2016. Um, but I I hope to um, I have a Facebook uh, artist page under Melissa Dupre performer they could find me there and I hope to be um, it's my comeback I'm trying to like repackage myself so I've got a website got all these things um, but I will be making more videos accessible online via Twitters and Instagrams and all those things and they could always find me at Free Street because I live there I'm the general manager of a social justice theater company the oldest one in Chicago almost 50 years old we're working very hard towards our 50th anniversary and I'm still one of the in-house resident artists so I still get to make plays where I work so it's lovely (laughs) well we'll make sure to promote your work as it comes through before and during after the show airs too so Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you all. So Thank you all much. for having yeah, me. You're listening to Sana Sana Podcast, a feminist podcast that promotes healing and normalizes mental health with Adriana and Adriana. Colita de Rana is medicine. In this week's Botica, we're talking to Melissa and Daisy from Brown and Proud Press, who, along with other members of their collective, provide a platform for communities of color to heal through scene-making, poetry, and events. My name is Daisy Zamora. 
Um, I'm one of the members of Brown and Proud Press. I'm a Chicago native, born and raised. Um, I'm 32. I'm an Aries Leo, and I uh, work at EYC. And I've been part of Brown and Proud Press for a couple of years now. Hi everyone, I'm Melissa Castro. I also go by my stage name, Melissa Castro Almandina. I am a poet and artist, and I'm one of the newest members of Brown and Proud Press. I think journaling was always the thing to go to and then I, I keep a lot of the old ones so I'm able to go back through through them and look at them and see growth right and see like wow I can't believe I felt that way or like wow I can't you know like look how I felt then or also like oh I wanted sometimes I make lists too like checklists of things that I want like the bucket list right 30 things that you want to do in life and um and to be able to go back to it and say like oh cross some things off because you've done them already like that's very um feels really good to me right and feels like oh this was five years ago three years ago and now I'm able to move past it um another place that I journal and sometimes it's just like random slips of paper I think also I'm always on the go and I'm an Aries Leo so always like doing stuff and um i don't always have access to like my journal so i'm like oh here's a receipt i'm gonna write it back it. like sometimes yeah. it just makes me feel calm mm -hmm. and it makes me feel good to get it out or to get things really clear on paper to mm -hmm. just be like okay i need to do this or i um need this affirmation or like need this to happen um and so just writing it down really helps i sometimes also use those slips of paper and add them to my altar like stick them under a candle mm -hmm. or like a, mm -hmm. um like a whatever i may have like in the form of an altar to to like a wish right kind of mm -hmm. like a and very similar to like what a lot of catholics and mexicans grew up with of like pidiendo algo and then going to the church to like light a candle or something like that right mm -hmm. so kind of i think inspired by that tradition but mine is like not not that quite i also don't go to church that often um but sticking it under a thing like that where it's like i'm making this wish and i hope it happens and like i'm gonna do my part and then i also you know the higher beings like please <laughs> you yeah. know do your part as well Back me up. exactly exactly <laughs> exactly yeah zines are just a they're a radical like form of self-publishing so you don't have to go through the literary community you can just publish your own things and that's what we encourage our community to do as well because the literary world can be incredibly white incredibly male um, expensive and expensive <laughs> and um, especially me as a poet um, I didn't know how to get my stuff out there and a zine was just the, the perfect way because I have control over it I can print it and all the money goes back to me. As a collective, we we write our own stuff. We also write scenes, some scenes that are together um, and open to community. Mm -hmm. um, and so the initially the collective stuff, we select a theme and then we send it out to the community. People write, we write if we want to write for it and then we'll put it together. Um, usually people would just be like, okay, I'll take two pages, you take two and then mm -hmm. we decorate it. But we also want to make sure that the pages blend in together and that it's not like super... Um, out there right it's like we, we want it to be nice and funky but also like 
work together. And so then we put it together and then we print it and then it's ready for, for selling. Yeah. Um, individually, we also have our own projects. And mm. I think mostly that's started because we have a lot to say mm -hmm. and we yeah. have a lot of stories and why not? You know, yeah. like, why not? We have our collective stuff and we're also like individual people. So this is Melissa's like individual yeah. scene um, and I have my own. Called Rose Quartz and Serpentine. It's my scene. I debuted it. <laughs> I, I love Rose Quartz and Serpentine. So those, those are both of the stones that I always like um, carry with myself. My Serpentine, I always carry that when I'm in action. It gives me, it gives me courage. It gives me mm -hmm. so I can shout. So I can, you know, because a lot of what the work that I do is healing. But I also want to find liberation for my community. So um, in the middle of my scene, I have an ode to brown eyes. So that was very intentional. So I can read those two little poems. The first one is called Tourmalines. I always get lost in brown eyes. They're the most pyroelectric, lost in the convergence of black and white, where even the light likes to dance, reflect, and stay a while before flight. And then the second one is called Our Brown Eyes. My eyes are not the color of the ocean or have the golden warmth of topaz. And yet, they are radiant, colored like crushed seeds, sharp and aromatic, the color of wet earth, teeming with life. Healing is a process. At Sana Sana, we believe we're doing the work to heal today for a healthier, better mañana. Here are some of the ways we're taking care of ourselves. I actually did this really cute thing today. Um, I've done it before. It's uh, I use the Insight app for meditation. And it's Insight, I-N-S-I-G-H-T. And it has like a whole library of meditations, guided meditations with different teachers. It has different music that you can use. And also I could just, you could have a timer and just meditate to silence, but it has like different bells and stuff like that that you can use. Bells for eyes. Yeah, it's great. Oh my God. Oh, I'll never <laughs> think of bells again in the same way. That's messed up. Adriana just referenced her body and other parties um, from the short story, especially heinous. If you haven't read it yet, we're not going to ruin it. But you when, should read it. When you do, you're going to freak out over that reference. And bells will never be the same <laughs> to you. Darn it. I will not have that ruin my meditation. I love no, the no, sound of bells. No, no. I don't want it to ruin the meditation, but just proceed with caution. I don't think... I, I pictured it like little baby symbols. That's how I pictured that. I literally pictured... Like little... Yeah. Little cling, cling, cling. Uh-huh. Which is, I think, a little bit creepier than like the little symbols. <laughs> Anyways. Oh, so funny. Okay. Um, what was I saying? Oh, so one of the meditations on there that I did today, and I hadn't done it in a while, is one called Mutt Meditation. Mm. And you do it while you're taking your dog on a walk. Oh, I love that. It was really nice because it gets you to just really think about the whole act 
of um, connecting with your animal, but also just like taking time to breathe and to feel the ground underneath you, feeling how like your foot is adjusting to, you know, each step, Mm -hmm. making note of any like pain you might be having or non-pain, right? Um, Observing how your animal's reacting to different, you know, things throughout your walk it was just really nice and it's a good way if you're a busy person that happens to have animals to like sneak in your meditation yeah um so highly recommend it it's a 40 minute meditation but really it's only like 20 minutes guided and then it leaves you 20 other minutes to kind of just you know depending on if you need that much to walk your dog to be able to I feel like now I just miss your dog. I know. Sita, I, I should have brought them. Love you forever. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <a> good pun. <laughs> I love that. And I actually am going to look that up because I'm still trying to step up my meditation game. Mm-hmm. And I was really excited because I did. Well, we didn't actually. Well, I feel like we did do a meditation. So I put a meditation, a guided meditation on. And Jenna listened to it for the first time, and we were like talking about like meditation and just introducing it to her. So I'm sure you're listening to this. Shout out. To, this is an official shout out to Jenna. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, so I'm definitely going to look that up. Um, yeah, that, that, that one is a phone app, right? Um, Insight, but I'm a big fan of all kinds of meditation tools so if our listeners have any that they love and recommend definitely comment on soundcloud or send us um, a message on social media another thing that i really like to kind of prompt meditation is um daily meditation books okay do you ever use those Mm -mm. so i have all kinds of different ones but the one that i've been using a lot these days is called the Language of Letting Go, and it's by Melody Beatty, who we've actually talked about before. Oh, I've read that book. Yeah, so it's basically every day it has a prompt of something that you can think about. To- oh my gosh, okay, so wait, that, okay, so weird, but I guess not that weird. So the book that we were talking about before mm-hmm. is also by her, and it's Codependent No More, Correct. which is also the one that I have read but the language of letting go i also read and i never knew that it was a meditation book this was seven years ago or something (laughs) so revisiting something after that long so do you remember that it had dates i guess so (laughs) so you're supposed to read one per day obviously you could read more and you can read them out of order if you want but it's a way to just like make it accessible for people who might not have built up a longer practice for meditation so even just being able to center yourself on a reading so it could be through something formal like like this book of meditations of daily meditations i know um in buddhism the the practice they also have a lot of different um meditation books that will have you think about one small little thing um some kind of like inspirational paragraph that you can incorporate throughout the rest of your day too but for me I'm definitely like I just take it in at that moment and then it might I might remember it throughout the day but it always is like 
just a good place even if it's the book that you use every day and then you read it again the next year and then you read it again the next year sometimes depending on what the meditation book is like you notice how your body and your mind reacts to it differently depending on where you are in your life at that moment I mean I completely and I feel like I was gonna say obviously because when I read that book, I had no idea or my body or mind had no idea that it was a meditation book. And I'm just, my mind is blown right now. Yeah. I want to look for it. Yeah. And I can't believe it. What a bad therapist that I had that didn't really explain the book to me. Well, maybe some people think it's a self-explanatory and it's not, right? Even I don't think me. it is. And for me as someone who has just recently in the last year and a half, um, started to slowly establish a practice of meditation and praying. Um, those little books have been really big for me where I just like, as soon as I wake up, I read it or I say a little prayer and then I get out of bed. So even if I have no time for meditation, like I at least had a little, a little snippet of like yeah. reading or even just for me, the serenity prayer is something that's like really simple that I could say. Uh -huh. Um, that that has helped it's been really cool to see how i've grown in my practice because of just like setting a small habit to do like every day yeah and it's not perfect like there are days i don't do it but i could tell when i don't do it i'm like off a little bit <laughs> so i like the guided meditation because i like someone to talk to me mm -hmm. and i don't want to like sometimes i just don't want to read right so i'm like closing my eyes and like some serene voice is like talking to me so I really like mm -hmm. that but I'm gonna look for my book I know I have it yeah um keep it by your bed stand and like try to either read it before you wake up like fully get up out of bed or read it before bed one or the other just to have like or or whatever works for you right but just something that you know like you can it's like brushing your teeth right like what is mm -hmm. what is the time of the day that you know it'll help you make the habit stick oh my gosh mm -hmm. what a silly world <laughs> i'm like i feel so dumb right now you but. shouldn't you shouldn't i think there's a lot of people that probably i honestly would have never thought if you had told me three years ago that i'd be reading reading daily meditations every day i would just kind of like roll my eyes at you because it, honestly i have a really hard time um making anything stick mm -hmm. or at least i used to think so and i think part of that is because i'm very like one of the traits that I'm working to change is I'm a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you're a perfectionist, you let that fear of not doing something perfectly stop you. So when Preach. I... Right? <laughs> when I realize that habits are about just practicing, not perfection, but progress, that has really changed my life. Like, I've slowly started to create habits that I never thought I would have done regularly mm -hmm. and so even if I don't do it every single day if I did it five days out of the week that's still more than I would have if I had never started yeah I'm I mean I definitely don't do it as much as you do or other people that it is like a daily um, routine or habit mm -hmm. um, but I'm really enjoying it and um, I like to do it in the morning Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sana Sana Podcast, written and co-hosted by Adriana and Adriana. Our theme song is by Alina Celeste. Our cover art features a photograph by Tanto Jensen. Join the conversation. Follow Sana Sana on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Sana Sana Podcast. 
send us love letters to sanasanapodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Melissa Dupree, Daisy Zamora, and Melissa Almandina for sharing their wisdom and light. Sana Sana Podcast is a Despierta production and is recorded at Full Circle Collective in the Bridgeport Arts Center in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about Full Circle Collective, visit fullcirclecollective.space. Sana soy, sino sana soy.